There is a restaurant on the west side of town. It's an Italian restaurant. It's part of a national chain. It's called Carabas. Have you ever been there? I have only been there three times. Each time was for a wedding. One time it was a rehearsal dinner. Twice it was a reception. And I remember the first time I pulled up, I thought, I've seen these places off the freeway. The restaurants that have like a forest on the roof. There's all these trees. And as you walk in, you go, wow, there's, there's all sorts of vegetation up there. And they're sculpted nicely. It looks good. You walk in, and I had really good meals there. I get back in my car. I drive home. And I look at my house, and I think one thing. Why do all those plants look so good on the roof of that restaurant, but when they're growing out of my gutters, they don't? You ever get that? That shows a little bit of, of home neglect when you get just the perfect storm of like leaf matter, you didn't clean it out in time, some seeds blow in, you have just the right wrong amount of rain and sunshine, and all of a sudden you've got a little forest growing in there. Luckily, as quick as it can burst up and grow up, the sun will bake those things and they will wilt, and then it's pretty easy to scoop it all out. But that's the picture that we see in this scripture here, in Psalm 129. On the roof of a house, grass growing. And of course, in the ancient Near East, the houses had flat roofs, and there were dirt. Uh, there would be, there would be some, some soil there, and then it would be packed clay and this kind of stuff. And, and uh, there would always be a tendency for some seeds to blow in, to kind of come up and grow, and apparently they just kind of let it grow for a minute, and then the sun of the desert would come in and bake it, and it would all wilt, and then they could pull it out and throw it away. And it was no big deal, it was just part of life. And that is what the psalmist here says comes of opposing God. Now, this is a very interesting uh, kind of combination of categories. When we're looking at the Psalms, you can usually break them up into very clean sections. You can say, this is this kind of Psalm, this is that kind of Psalm. I remember studying it in seminary, and, and it was very kind of satisfying to be able to put everything delineated in its proper category. This Psalm is part of a group of Psalms, 15 of them, called the Songs of Ascent, or the Songs of Degrees. There are 15 and they go from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. It's been suggested that because there were 15 steps up into the temple, these were the psalms, the psalms of ascent that the Levites would sing and praise God as they went up, singing one on each step. Also, we know that these were songs that were sung by pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. And they are short. They are punchy. They have repeated phrases in them, so they're easy to remember. And a lot of them have been turned into songs. A lot of them are very famous. They've got famous verses in them. For example, Psalm 121, I lift my eyes unto the hill. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. You may hear those words and you've got a melody in your head like I do from a, what, a Casting Crown song a few years ago. Uh, Psalm 125, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. This is a verse you've heard before. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And yet this Psalm 129 is not a super popular one. I've never heard it turn into a song. I've never seen it uh, needlepoint hanging on the wall. And I think maybe there's a couple reasons. First of all, even though it's a song of ascent, it's also a song of lament. It begins, the first half of it, lamenting what Israel has endured in the past. The hard things that God's people have been through. 
thus far in their life as God's people. Yes, it's a lament. It's full of trust and confidence in the Lord, but there's something about the psalmist looking back at his afflictions, which even though it fills him with assurance for the future, it fills us with kind of a sense of, wait a minute, are we really ascending or is this a song of descent? Also, the second half then becomes an imprecatory psalm. You know that term? Imprecatory meaning someone here, the psalmist, is calling out God's judgment against his enemies. We see that sometimes in the psalms. As Christians, it often makes us, I think, a little uncomfortable. I I know a a good friend of mine who was in ministry, went through a very difficult time with people trying to destroy him, and he told me once that he was tempted to pray some of these imprecatory psalms against his enemies, and then the Holy Spirit came and said, no, that's not that's not who I've called you to be, and, 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 and gave him some peace. And so we, we have a weird relationship with these imprecatory psalms as well. The idea of God pouring out retribution on the enemies of his people. So if we look at it, the first half, verses 1 through 4, they look back. They, they deal with the past, and there's a lot of past to deal with. It begins with the words, Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, let Israel now say. Now, we've got the word me, first person singular, so perhaps the psalmist is thinking of something that he has been through himself, the difficulties he's faced, but then, of course, let Israel say, and everything that follows is about Israel, so at the same time, we're talking about Israel as one, in one voice, as God's son or daughter shouting out, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. The psalmist here is, is kind of using a picture of Israel as the firstborn child of God, which we find throughout Scripture. We think about uh, Hosea 2.15, which identifies for us exactly what was Israel's youth. Israel shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So from my youth, meaning from when we were in Egypt and we were being greatly afflicted, we were made slaves for 400 years there under the, the boot of Pharaoh. We suffered and suffered some more. Jeremiah and Ezekiel both refer to the Israel's youth in the same way. And then in Hosea 11, of course, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And so God, thinking of Israel as his son in Egypt, suffering, being afflicted, and then he calls that son out. It's a picture of deliverance. Of course, there would be much more affliction between the Exodus and the writing of this, and then afterward, there would be yet even more affliction for Israel. Theirs is a story of struggle. There would come the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, all oppressing, all afflicting. But in Egypt, they perhaps suffered the most. And in Egypt, when they were delivered, that becomes the defining moment of the Old Testament. And of course, as they continue in this, uh, in this psalm of lament and ascent to describe, as the psalmist says, the plowers plowed upon my back and made long their furrows, we get a sense for just how deep that suffering went. It wasn't just lengthy suffering. It went to the heart. It went to the quick. In Micah 3, we read, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. A picture of taking this agricultural idea, a plow digging down, cutting furrows through a field, and saying this happened to Israel. It's a very violent and 
and very evocative picture. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Verse 2, greatly have they afflicted me. He says it again. The repetition reminding us of the repetition of the affliction that has come upon Israel. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. And then comes the key verse. And the key word, which is one letter long. It's the word... That's a great Hebrew word. Say it with me now. It's one letter, the letter key. It's the word yet, or the word but. And you just affix it to the beginning of the next word, and it changes everything. We've been afflicted greatly from youth. We've been afflicted. We've been, we've been plowed like a field, yet they have not prevailed against me. That one letter changes the whole thrust, the whole direction, the whole momentum of the psalm. We see here several things. First, that God's enemies are filled with almost unlimited hatred for God's people. And that they rarely tire of opposing his church, but that all of their work is in vain, as we heard in an earlier psalm of ascent. Unless the Lord build the house, the workers labor in vain. And those working against the Lord, they're setting themselves up for the, the waves to come in and dash the house to pieces. God's sustaining presence with his people throughout their afflictions, from their youth to the time of David to the time of Christ, is the, the hallmark of all Scripture. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is continually under attack, and yet the gates of hell could not and would not and will not prevail against God's holy church, Old Testament or new. Perhaps you read these words and you think, yes, greatly have I also been afflicted from my youth. I have been through some very difficult times. I too feel like, uh, metaphorically speaking, I've had my back plowed open. I, I've been on my face in the mud and, and I've not been even left alone. They've come and, and torn through me and, and I too struggle with how to continue forward Remember that little phrase, and yet they have not prevailed against me. Your enemies have not ultimately prevailed against you. Our enemy, who is not flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, have not prevailed against As long as you still wake up the next morning, you've not yet been prevailed against. You're still in the game. And they're still in the game here. God's people have been greatly afflicted, and they have endured. But notice in verse 4 where the psalmist goes. That he clicks right into describing not himself and how rugged he is, not his nation and how tenacious they are, but God and how righteous and faithful he is. He does not say, you can't keep me down. You can't keep us down. We're not quitters. He does not write, those hallowed words, I get knocked down, but I get up again. You're never going to keep me down. I'm sorry. That'll be keeping you awake tonight. He says instead, the Lord is righteous. That is why my enemies have not prevailed. He is faithful to his promises. As Paul will tell us later, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We are more than conquerors, but only in him who loved us. It's in him that we conquer. And it's been in many places around the world where the church has been persecuted. For example, the Presbyterian Church in Scotland. 
their symbol has become a burning bush. Because they remember God, in revealing himself to Moses, appeared in a bush that was burning and burning and yet not consumed. And they said that's God's nature, and he shares it in a sense with us, that we, in, in the fire, in the furnace of affliction, have not been consumed. God is a consuming fire, but he does not want to consume you, only your dross, to purify you and to purify me. And where we've been afflicted, he's been there with us. That's the promise of the Old Testament. Remember, God with us, Emmanuel. He's coming. He's going to come down and be with us. And what's more, God with us is God for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? This is the way that, that he ramps up into the second half of this psalm which is about not the past and their afflictions, but the future and the hope that they have in their God. Robert Fawcett, when writing on this psalm, says this, Faith anticipates future triumphs over the enemy from those vouchsafed in times past. Gosh, I wish we could get away with talking like that today. Faith anticipates future triumphs over the enemy from those vouchsafed in times past. Looking back, reminds them that God is faithful and looking forward then, it is a comfort. What we don't find overly comforting, I think, when we immediately read this and, and, and just wrestle with it, is the fact that the hope Israel has for a future here, the hope that the psalmist has, takes a form of three petitions against the enemies of God. Three petitions against those who hate Zion. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backwards, it begins. As the psalmist looks out at their enemies, the enemies of God's people, the enemies of Zion, Zion, of course, the hill in Jerusalem, which kind of stands in for not only Jerusalem, but the temple and, and the entire system, the economy of grace in the Old Testament, those who set themselves against it appear innumerable and unshakable and undefeatable, unbeatable. And the prayer of the psalmist, then, is that God would destroy them, he would shame them, he would send them home in utter defeat. Those who would come to defeat God's people. Now recognize, first of all, that while this passage, like all scripture, contains inerrant truth, the psalmist does not equal God. We're getting the point of view of someone who has been afflicted from youth, who is part of a people who have been afflicted for, well, millennia, and so we have here a particular point of view. This is someone who, because of when he was born, when he lived, when he died, never had heard Jesus' teaching of love your enemies, bless those who curse you, bless and do not curse. And even if he had, what he's doing here, I think is appropriate. Because he is, first of all, casting his cares upon God. He is seeing an enemy that seems indefeatable, indefatigable. There's a word for you. And he says, God, you can defeat them. You can fatigue them. You do your thing. I cast my cares upon you. And there is, at the end of the day, a great difference between, Lord, you handle your enemies. You are able and mighty to do so, on one hand, versus taking vengeance myself, or even asking God to destroy an individual person. I mean, we think about Jesus' woes. And he says to categories of people, woe to you, 
teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, and describes what those people do who will be the the objects of God's judgment. He does not, however, say, woe to you, Simon the Pharisee, you're a jerk, I know what you, no, see, there's something different going on here. God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Four times in the scriptures we read that. Give it to him to repay, along with any of bitterness that you might be holding on to. Trusting that God will confuse and confound the efforts of those who oppose him, just like he confused the language of those building the tower at Babel in defiance of his commands. God is all-powerful. Adam Clark said, this is not the language of personal revenge, but of holy zeal for God and for his people. And I think he is right. What we see here is that those who hate Zion, those who hate the church of God, hate God himself. And that is a sobering thing in a world where mocking the church has become a professional sport practically in the culture, even among those who claim to be followers of Jesus. Mocking the church, seeing it as nothing but a racket, seeing it as uh, an outdated and antiquated joke of an institution. Those who hate Zion hate God himself, and all of God's enemies will be utterly confounded. And perhaps that's what we find so uncomfortable about that sort of a passage Verses 5 through 8 here, the dichotomy. It's black and white. There's no middle. Either you love the Lord and experience his peace and blessing, or you oppose the Lord and hate Zion, and it leads to judgment and curse. Jesus taught the same thing. There are two roads. Narrow road that leads to destruction. Many find it. Wide gate, easy path, luxurious. There's a small gate. leads to life. Narrow is the gate. Small is the path. And few find it. This is the same passage, the same teaching, rather, that we see going all the way back to Deuteronomy. I have laid before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Therefore, choose life that you might live. Starting in verse 6, then, we change to the second petition. And this kind of goes right into the third by way of the grass on the roof. The seeds blowing in. So shallow, so dry, they wither away quickly. And as the psalmist points out here, they're there so quickly and gone so quickly, harvesters can't gather them up. Reapers can't bundle them together in sheaves. They're good for nothing and come to nothing. These grasses that grow on the roofs of houses. This is not the only time this kind of a picture comes up. It must have been an idiom amongst God's people. Uh, In Isaiah 37, we read, God's enemies are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. There are a bunch of weeds in our yard right now. We accidentally let them grow up, and then they got so spiky. Now it's going to take some thick gloves to pull them. Every once in a while, I go over and I kind of, nope, nope. There's nowhere to to really get a, a hold on it, but they're blighted. You know, they grew up, I think, why can't, you know, like people's prize azaleas or whatever grow up with that kind of gusto that these weeds have? Or why can't we find the weeds beautiful? And then it would be easy gardening. But no, they're blighted before they grow up. And Jesus jumps on this same figure of speech in his teaching, going even further, saying that this grass is good for nothing but to be tossed into the furnace where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there is neither harvesting or bundling. And, and this is, when you first read it, to me, this was a very strange uh, final statement. Neither do people who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. 
We bless you in the name of the Lord. Now, do you ever really walk by any grass or plant matter at all? Even when you walk by Carabas, you're not looking at the plants going, well, blessings of the Lord be upon you. What's being referenced, of course, is the traditional blessing that was shared between anyone passing by harvesters during time of harvest, the reapers and those who were in the proximity. For example, in Ruth 2, remember, Ruth has found her way onto Boaz's land, and she is picking up what is dropped by the reapers. And Boaz shows up, and everyone snaps to attention, and they say, the Lord be with you, and he says, the Lord bless you. That was the standard greeting between people during harvest time, a time of blessing, to bless one another. But no one's saying this blessing when they see someone pulling up the grass from the top of their house. That would be silly. This comes to nothing. What our enemies, what God's enemies are trying to do, the afflictions that we undergo often seem so great in the moment, but they come to nothing and ultimately are short-lived. In fact, This must be what Paul had in mind when he said, our light and momentary troubles are not worthy of being compared to the glory which lie ahead in Christ Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus has promised then to do. To deal with the enemies that are growing so quickly, but burning out so quickly. While we are commanded to bless those who curse us, we take the same sort of comfort in God's protection and sustaining protection as the psalmist does we trust in the words of isaiah 54 which ends with that statement no weapon formed against you will prosper no weapon formed against you will prosper it might for a moment but it will not ultimately prevail you can look back and say i have been afflicted maybe even afflicted from my youth and yet they have not prevailed against me again and again the story of the old testament is one of deliverance For the Old Testament saint, the ultimate example of that deliverance was the Exodus. We were slaves. God sent Moses, great signs and wonders, humiliated all the false gods of Egypt, humiliated Pharaoh himself, and then brought us out of Egypt carrying spoils and into a land of milk and honey, eventually. And and this becomes almost the identity of God to the point where he uses it to identify himself to them. Right at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, he says, he doesn't say, I'm the Lord your God who created everything. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. That act of deliverance is how you ought to think of me. That the fact that I am your deliverer, I am the one who saves you from your affliction. In the New Testament, this deliverance is manifest in so great a way that even the exodus becomes an inadequate picture of the depth of God's love and mercy. It'd be almost, I mean, if you lived in 1895 in in Indiana and not far from the Wright brothers, you'd say, oh, I've heard of them. Yeah, they've got a newspaper. They make bicycles. I hear they make great bicycles. They, They sell them at a fair price. Six or seven years later, no one's talking about these bicycles anymore, right? We've got flight. They've been in the sky. Now we talk about something else. Well, to us, when we talk about the mercy of Jesus Christ, the mercy of our God, our Redeemer, it's in the cross. I am the Lord your God who bore your sins on the tree, who became a curse so that you could be blessed, who will crush Satan soon under your feet. Looking back at our afflictions, we see one more thing as believers, something that the psalmist could not see. And that is that that Jesus bore them on his own 
shoulders. And that is a comfort that we have that the Old Testament saint did not. In fact, when we look at Isaiah, just flip into the, the territory of Isaiah 53, or just listen. Verses 4 through 7. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. On him, the stripes on his back, like furrows on a field plowed across his back, were laid not only Israel's afflictions, but all of ours. Or that passage from Hosea 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Remember in Matthew, we're told that Jesus fulfilled that? The way that Jesus fulfilled that, the way that Jesus fulfilled what Israel did, means that his, his death, his vicarious death, fulfilled their afflictions and even paid for their disobedience that caused them. Flip back to Isaiah 51 here. Verses 23, we see, I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. This is precisely the same picture that the psalmist paints of what he and his people have endured. Jesus said, I will endure it, but without sin. I will, I will take your afflictions upon my shoulders. Back one more chapter, Isaiah 50, starting with verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. We see here that Christ endured our afflictions. Christ endured all that the curse has brought upon this world. And you know, even if you have been through something so much deeper and more difficult than anything I have been through or could imagine, Jesus can God the Father experienced the death of a son and the heartbreak. He is with you in your affliction and your enemies will not prevail. In the Son, we see an experience of separation from a parent looking away. We, we, we see this, this break in what should be an unbreakable union. Your God has been where you have walked and He continues with you. We read that God did not let our enemies prevail, but rather has broken the cords of the wicked. The cords that held them back is probably a picture like how oxen would be attached by the yoke to the plow and pull along. God came and broke those cords. In Psalm 118, there is the cords of death coming up more than once. And I think these two things are parallel. The cords of the wicked, the cords of death. Well, Jesus gave his back gave his cheeks for his beard to be pulled, gave his hands and feet to be pierced. For those who afflicted Israel, 
to come and do their worst. But the cords of the wicked, the cords of death, could not hold him. And on the third day, he came out. And because he was raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead. And the cords of death, the cords of the wicked, cannot hold us either. Now let me ask you, is this how you think of God in your affliction? When things are difficult, when you suffer and face trials of various kinds, the times when James tells us to consider it pure joy, and you say, really? Really, James? Do you, do you have the attitude, like I often do, of God, you're not coming off great in my little story? We, you know, I, I, I've submitted uh, manuscripts to editors, and Aaron has done this too, and you get back, well, this character needs some work. Hey, God, uh, maybe be a little more active, a little more present here. Or do we think our God is the God who is faithful and righteous, who created us and preserves us, and I get to be a part of his epic story of deliverance? I have looked back at the affliction of the past, and I know that the enemy has not prevailed against me. So when I look forward, I know that God will confound his enemies on my behalf and bring us safely into his arms. Ultimately, this song is a song of comfort and hope. Yes, all of us will one day die, unless the Lord comes back before that. But even after we die, or as the New Testament puts it, after we've fallen asleep, Still, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Read the book of Revelation. Still, beyond the grave, we have hope. Don't forget that really important word. <sighs> say that one to yourself once in a while. You can even say it out loud. People think you're a little nuts. Who cares? You start to think, oh, this, this is it. I'm, I'm done for. <sighs> Yet, they have not prevailed against me. Looking back at Christ's resurrection, we have assurance of our future. Yes, we'll die, we'll fall asleep, but like I said, as long as you wake up in the morning, your enemies have not prevailed against you. And we have all the hope in the world and ground because of what Christ did to believe that we will wake up in the morning at the coming of the Lord. God with us is God for us. He comes alongside us. He calls us to walk with Him, to follow Him, to choose life that we might live. To look at our past, both the blessings and the difficulties, and know that He is with us yet and for us forever. Yet, they have not prevailed against me. Perhaps you have been afflicted lately. Do not lose hope. God with you is God for you. And if God is for you, who could be against you? Heavenly Father, we pray that you will be with us as we leave this place. We thank you that we could join you at the Lord's table, that we could partake of the body and the blood of Jesus, as St. Paul writes, that we could be filled anew with a sense of awe at what you did on our behalf. That, Lord, we could look back at your afflictions, not at ours, and be filled with confidence that you will be with us forever. That if you would endure that for us, there's no chance that you will walk away. Nothing will be too difficult for you. Nothing, nothing will cause you to give up on us who have put our faith in you and been born again. Lord, may we remember that as we think of our pasts, as we are tempted to be disheartened, as the enemy may come and even remind us of the sins that have entangled us before. And, and even recently, Lord, may we remind him that our future is secure, and so is his. Lord, give us hope. Give us, give us songs of ascent, even in the midst of our lament. In your holy name we pray. Amen.